This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks for listening. For the week of September 5th, 2022, here are some top stories. St. Mary's Food Bank has been around for more than half a century, and last month, the food bank served a record 150,000 families. Increasingly, that count includes people 50 and older, many of whom are on fixed incomes. Kathy Ritchie recently spent the morning at St. Mary's talking to those waiting in their cars for food. 52-year-old Ronald Pritchard is slowly inching his way up to the front of the line where volunteers will deposit a week's worth of food in his front seat. Right now, he's stopped under one of two large tents, which offers a bit of reprieve from the baking sun. It's already 95 degrees. Pritchard has been coming to this food bank for the last six months. But I've been here before. Uh, it's like in between jobs and stuff. He's working now, but... Not making as much as I was before, so it's a little tight. And uh, I just come here like maybe uh, twice a month, and uh, it helps out sometimes, you know. Just a couple of cars behind Pritchard is Sista. She didn't want to give her last name, but she was happy to talk. Sista is 78 and was recently let go from her job. Well, my social security goes to my rent, hunt. I pay a lot of rent. Right now I have insurance, car insurance, my cell phone, and another insurance that I have to pay. So she has to choose between her bills and food. I don't everybody. know how these people can work and afford food on top of what the cost of living is going up here now. That's Sista's daughter, Monica. She also declined to share her last name, but drove her mom here so she doesn't use up her gas, which is just shy of $4 a gallon these days. She doesn't really get that much money, so this kind of helps. And then whatever odds and ends that she didn't get here, me and my sisters are able to provide her with, or whatever little bit she has left out of her Social Security check will cover like milk, breads, if she didn't get that here today. According to the organization Feeding America, in 2020, more than 5 million adults, 60 and older, faced hunger. And while things were very difficult during the COVID-19 pandemic, what's happening now is different. Jerry Brown is St. Mary's Director of Public Relations. When it comes to gasoline, when it comes to food, when it comes to uh, high, high rents, especially among our senior population, when you're on fixed incomes and uh, inflation goes up, 10%, that's a bad combination because there's nowhere you have to make cuts. Which leads to what's happening here on this day. Brown says their busiest days used to be Mondays and Fridays, right as they opened and right before they closed. Now it's a constant flow, Monday through Friday, 8 o'clock to 1 o'clock. And sometimes the lines are so backed up. We're sending people around the block until there's an open spot where you can even get into the parking lot to start the process of waiting. Brown says it can take 30 minutes or so to actually get a box of food, which includes a big bag of iceberg lettuce, English muffins, eggs, fresh fruit, and even a case of Rockstar energy drink. Though it varies depending on what's available on a given day. I've been doing this for 13 years. I, I was through the recession in 2009 and 2010 when we were putting, we thought, you know, 50 to 60 million pounds of food was, you know, an incredible amount of food. We put out 123 million pounds of food last year. Um, so it's getting worse. It's yeah. I mean, the, the the number of people that need help. But when you when you go through what we went through in the pandemic in 2020, and you say to yourself, okay, that's going to be the apex, and then two late two years later, you find yourself in a similar situation with a similar amount of people needing help. It's 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a frustrating situation. What does this say for the future? When you have 10,000 baby boomers turning 65, yep. like the number is ridiculously high, right. and most Americans are not financially prepared to retire. Right. And Social Security may or may not be there. Right now, Social Security isn't nearly enough for those who solely depend on it. Yet 37% of men and 42% of women receive half or more of their income from that benefit. And the amount can vary. According to AARP, a person born in 1960 who earned roughly $50,000 a year would get a monthly benefit of $1,338 if they retire at age 62. Yet the medium cost of a studio apartment in Phoenix is just over $1,400 a month. Yeah, I'm in a uh, Section 8 apartment. I pay $374. That's Fred. Like Sista and Monica, he wasn't comfortable sharing his last name. He, along with his squishy-faced pug Roxanne, are about 10 minutes from the front of the line. At age 80, he relies on his Social Security to cover his rent and everything else life throws at him. Food is near the bottom of that list. His advice? Well, put, put more money into Social Security. You'll get more in the end. What he means? Earn more, work longer. Easier said than done in a country where the ability to age well is already financially out of reach for so many. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news. The latest Arizona Academic Standards Assessment results show students statewide performed slightly better in the last school year than they did in the previous year. Katherine Davis-Young has details. Student test scores are still not back to where they were pre-pandemic. In the 2021-2022 school year, 41% of Arizona students passed the English assessment, while just 33% passed the math section. But State Superintendent of Public Instruction Kathy Hoffman says those scores improved a few percentage points from the previous school year. Even though last year was still a difficult and tumultuous year for our schools, by and large, most of our students were back in the classroom. And so we are are pleased to see that our students are making steady growth. Hoffman says there is still room for improvement. She says the department is investing millions of federal dollars this year in professional development for teachers, plus math, literacy, and mental health programs for students. Katherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, Phoenix has a five-year goal to reduce deadly crashes by 25% and to eliminate all traffic fatalities and serious injuries by 2050. As Christina Estes reports from our downtown bureau, the city council unanimously approved the plan Wednesday night. Our first efforts were going to be on evaluation and engineering. Street Transportation Director Kini Knutson told the council they'll focus on the most dangerous intersections first. It might be a visibility issue with vegetation. That it's just we need to take care of that. It could be just as simple as that, or it could be much more complex. And that's the idea of being able to use the data behind there to see what's actually happening at the location and then figure out the, what's the right countermeasure to be able to address that and make it safer. Last year, 231 people died on Phoenix streets the most ever in a year. The Vision Zero Road Safety Action Plan includes a task force with a community advisory committee and $10 million in annual funding. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Science News. Scientists have long tried to clarify the complex relationship between uncomfortable temperatures, human behavior, and societal stability. Climate change has only added urgency to the question. 
From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis has the latest. Researchers used machine learning to identify 75 million posts matching the UN definition of hate speech and cross-referenced them with weather data. They found the number and share of hate tweets grew as temperatures moved outside the 54 to 70 degree Fahrenheit range, up to 12% more during cold conditions and 22% more on hot days. The pattern held regardless of income, religious belief, or political preference. Online hate can worsen mental health conditions, so the findings suggest protecting the planet from excessive warming could also help safeguard mental and societal health. The research appears in the journal Lancet Planetary Health. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. Let's give a listen to a new recurring series from the show called Hot Town. Despite all the attributes of being the country's fifth largest metropolis, really, what we are known for here is the heat. Excessive heat warnings continue here, up to the north, out to the east, down to the south, and all across western Arizona. The valley's population growth has become a contributing factor to the urban heat island effect. Temperatures well, well above <laughs> normal today. It's too darn hot. It's too darn And we'd like to begin this new series with a look back. And for that, we're joined by the show's Sativa Peterson, senior producer and former newspaper collection librarian for the state of Arizona, to tell us about the history of Phoenix's complicated relationship with heat. Welcome, Sativa. Hi. So particularly as we stare down a week of extreme temperatures after Labor Day, we all know summers here can be sort of an exercise in endurance. So has that always been the case? Like, tell us what we see when we look back at the historic Arizona newspapers you got to know so well. Sure. You know, Arizona newspapers from early territorial days, you know, say 1870s, 1880s, into the first decades of the 20th century, they routinely quote articles from other parts of the country who are being afflicted with, you know, heat waves and people are having what they called back then heat prostration and mm-hmm. sunstrokes. Um, but at the same time, they're praising the rarity of such ailments happening here. Okay, so it's not something that happens in Arizona. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, I'll give you some examples. So like from the Arizona Sentinel, this is July 15th, 1876 in Washington, D.C. The paper reports, quote, the weather is extremely hot. 20 cases of sunstroke, 14 fatal. Mm. So it was unusual, of course, for heat waves to cause deaths um, in these days. So like in Chicago in June of 1908, eight people die of, of heat prostration, according to the front page of the Arizona Republic. Republican. And again, in 1911, the paper talks about five days of horror as a heat wave passes through the country. So cities like Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati, this is where these things happened. Uh, The papers sort of intimate not here, that we have a difference in results. So often the front page would report on heat fatalities in other cities. But when it came to our own weather, Hmm. um, I'll give you some examples of that. Arizona Sentinel from July 25th, 1874, Two men did not die of sunstroke, but of whiskey. Uh. No man ever died of sunstroke in Arizona. What? (laughs) (laughs) Or the Graham Guardian from uh, June of 1896. Prostration from sunstroke is so rare in the Gila Valley that when one does appear, it is a nine days wonder and can hardly be believed. My goodness. (laughs) Um, Here's one more. Duncan, Arizona, uh, 1913 in August. If you want a home in a cultured community, you will thank God for the pleasure of living where sunstroke is unknown. 
That's okay. Wow, this is really interesting. Okay, so it's like a wimpy thing. We don't we're above this somehow in in the Sonoran Desert. That's right. It's like other places uh, got sunstroke, according to these papers. Not us. Um, you know, it's like these articles are almost uh, bravado or overcompensation. You know, they reveal this preoccupation with uh, who was suffering uh, from the heat and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. And if you were suffering from the heat, um, that was, I guess a little bit of a wimpy thing. Mm. So uh, when we read this heat coverage from the past, it's clear that weather in Arizona left its citizens hardy and strong. You know, our sun did not produce such ailments, um, even though we know that to be false. Um, Health and climate are assets, you know, in our historic newspapers, and health and climate are repeatedly linked. So they're with the valley of the sun and and they're embracing it. Okay. And we have to not forget this is, you know, without air conditioning. I mean, I don't think it was as hot then, but when did we start to see it get a little easier, this kind of cooling technology start to appear? So uh, by the 1930s, we start to see some early evaporative coolers. Uh, And then by 1940, there were um, somewhere in the number of 30 Phoenix companies that were starting to manufacture evaporative coolers. Uh, But it really wasn't until after World War II, like around 1948, that we start to see refrigerated air conditioners becoming available. Mm -hmm. And one little fact to keep in mind that even by 1960, as late as 1960, only about 25 percent of Phoenix homes had some central air conditioning. Wow. Wow. Was it as hot then? Uh, the ranges are not too dissimilar. So normal temperature range for summer, and I'm, by summer I'm talking June to August, the range is about you know, 83, 80, 40, 84 degrees to about 107. But as we know, many of our record high temperatures for individual days are now you know, from the 2010s and, and even sooner than that. So it sounds like all in all, you look back at these historic newspapers and there was a sense that we are maybe immune from the heat or maybe we deal with it better, like we need to embrace it? That's right. Um, You know, in colder climates, we have this tradition of Groundhog Day. And if he sees the shadow, there's six more weeks of winter. (laughs) Maybe we need something like that here. Like if the rattlesnake sees its shadow, (laughs) we know there's six more weeks of summer. And And we are in them right now. That's right. And here we go. (laughs) All right. The show's Sativa Peterson. Thank you, Sativa. Thank you. So Phoenix has always been hot. And now climate change is proving to us each summer it's only getting hotter. But that's true all over the country. Here in Phoenix, though, it's just kind of our brand. But our next guest argues the same thing our state's historic newspapers seem to. We should embrace the heat, not run away from it. Tom Zellner is from a long line of Arizonans and spends a lot of time thinking about and writing about this place. He talked about this on the show back in 2019 and gave us all some pretty specific instructions to follow. This ought to be a civic requirement, I think, <laughs> if, if you're if you're going to live in Phoenix. And this is what I, I suggest. Go outside and let it pour down on you, not in some horrible urban asphalt heat island, but rather to go out to uh, the desert. And I, I want to say to uh, the KJS listeners, do this safely by all means. Uh, <laughs> make sure you know where you are at all times and uh, uh, bring at least two liters of water and have your GPS set and charge your phone. But by all means, uh, go out to the desert and experience the, the heat as it hits down on the desert, pounds you like a sledgehammer. 
That was 2019. Today, the heat in Phoenix and the discussion around it has only gotten more extreme. Not only have our temperatures continued to break records, but the national conversation about the Phoenix heat has turned from curious to deadly. A feature in Salon from this July claims Phoenix could soon become inhospitable as climate change and a punishing heat island effect pummel our streets with deadly heat. The rise in heat-related deaths here continues to garner international headlines, and national press still seem bewildered by the fact that people continue to move here. And at the same time, the rest of the world has also started to experience extreme heat as climate change takes hold. And they are significantly less prepared. So I invited Tom back on the show to talk more about the Phoenix heat and what it means for all of us who live here. Welcome back to the show, Tom. It's great to be here. Okay, so Tom, back in 2019, about the end of that year, we spoke about the heat here in Phoenix, and you argued that we should think about this very differently, that we should we should embrace the heat, we shouldn't be embarrassed of it or try to run away from it. Do you still think that even if, as we've sort of watched climate change make things even more extreme? Yes, I believe it more than ever, um, if only because it's it's sort of written in Phoenix's DNA that this is a city that's tried to deny uh, its place in the ecosystem, that the city was founded um, on hydrology, on creating an agricultural paradise in the middle of the upper Sonoran Desert. And when we get into these conversations in Arizona about, well, you know, what's the main difference in between our two principal cities, Tucson and Phoenix? Everyone loves to have this conversation <laughs> that plays into the, the wildcat sun devil rivalry. And I, I've always maintained, if you want to understand the, the, the real essential character of, of both of those towns, you just look simply to the hydrology, that Phoenix was a boom town, and it was founded on the, the, the opening of the Roosevelt Dam in uh, 1910. You know, there's a reason why it's on our state seal. This, this opened up the Salt River Valley for massive agricultural commodity scale production, where it was uh, feasible only on lower levels before. And, you know, in the 1920s, there was a, a campaign by a Phoenix Garden Club called Let's Do Away with the Desert. Huh. In, a, in other words, yeah, let's become <laughs> like a Pasadena. Let's become a place that denies its place in nature. And, you know, Tucson is quite different. There never was, a, you know, until the CIP arrived in the 1980s, there never was large-scale hydrology. And it was a a garrison post on the Spanish frontier and then a university town. And so mm. the characteristics differ in that sense. And Phoenix is is a city that, that, that really turns its face away from the desert. And I, I want to encourage Phoenicians to safely and thoughtfully embrace the heat. Turn back to the desert. Yes. Let's, let's, let's do away with the do away with the desert. Hmm. So a lot has changed in the last few years since we first spoke about this, let alone a pandemic. But there are still a lot of apocalyptic kind of headlines out there that you'll see from mostly national press about sort of the deadly Phoenix heat and how this city will be abandoned in the future because it will be inhospitable and it will be sort of a wasteland post-climate change. I understand you drove all over the country this summer and you saw a lot of America and you're from a long line of Arizonans. So how do you think in your travels and when you talk to people, how do you think people view Phoenix, view Arizona, especially when it comes to the heat? Well, certainly that's a that's a top level observation that you always get is, oh, my gosh, it must be so hot there. And the, the apocalyptic descriptions that you cited, uh, I just want to point out that's nothing new, that when it comes to particularly Anglo understandings of Arizona, this always comes with a bit of a whiff of apocalypse, if you like. Um, 
<laughs> I want to go back to an Irish American writer named J. Ross Brown. He was one of the first Anglos to travel through Arizona after it was acquired for the United States. And he described it as scraggly thickets of mesquite, bunches of sage and greasewood, beds of sand and thorny cactus. Hmm. These these kind of florid Victorian, you know, hellscapes that that, that emerged in popular literature. Wow. There was a, a, a spouse of an army officer. Her name was Martha Summerhays. And she wrote in this really wonderful book called Vanished Arizona about what it was like to traverse between military posts. And she made reference to miles and miles of dust and burning heat. And uh, the 20th century depictions really kind of continued with this. Uh, hmm. In his famous cowboy novel, uh, The Last Stand at Papago Wells, Willie Lamore, 1957, described sandy, rock-strewn wastelands and sun-blasted desert. And these early literary characterizations still, I think, uh, form uh, the way the rest of the country uh, views this place called Arizona. Wow. So, okay, so this is nothing new, and people still think this. <laughs> what do you tell them? Not to believe the hype that Arizona's obviously, as everyone listening to this will know, a perfectly hospitable place to live. Um, people move here by choice. They do so because of the magic of air conditioning, which <laughs> transformed the uh, the Valley's economy in the 1940s and 1950s. The Motorola plant moving here was a signal uh, event in Arizona industrial history. And it was all because of air conditioning. And, you know, you don't see swamp coolers anymore. You don't see um, houses without this uh, this vital appliance uh, strapped to the side or on the top. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that's changed, I think, since we talked is that the rest of the country, the rest of the world really, has started to now see the effects of climate change as well and, and experience extreme heat in a way that we might be a little more used to. Has this started sort of shifting the way maybe the rest of the world, the rest of the country might look at a place like Phoenix? Certainly. And I think along with those apocalyptic descriptions of Arizona came with it a certain Arizona pride mm. in our ability to endure these terrible summers. And I don't want to take anything away from uh, from the fact that they are genuinely painful and unpleasant <laughs> and that climate change is absolutely real and that the standard temperatures are going up thanks to many factors, including the asphalt heat island. So, you know, to acknowledge that it's real, but also to say that uh, there's, there's a certain sort of inbred toughness regarding it in the... Uh, in the Arizona mentality. And it's something that you, I think, acquire within weeks of moving here, hmm. the sense that you are a Denzian of a, uh, of a tough frontier. So, so what about, what about lessons, right? Like other places in the country and the world are probably less prepared for extreme heat than we are. It's something we've right dealt with since our founding. What can we teach others about how to live in the heat, how to embrace the heat in this way? Yes. I'm saying that Arizonans should, should embrace the heat, should take some time to as I say, thoughtfully and mindfully, uh, go on a brief desert hike um, when it is uh, 110. Bring plenty of water, let people know where you're going, um, but but do go out there uh, amidst the, the greasewood and the cactus and just take a minute to feel it and to understand and even appreciate uh, the place where you live. Um, the, in the early 80s, there was a saying among some of uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, advisors who were fretting that he was going to lose the the middle of the country, and, and, and the idea emerged, let Reagan be Reagan. Well, I think we had to let Arizona just be Arizona, if only briefly. And so these, these other places of the country, which are achieving higher temperatures than uh, the normal, the most uncomfortable day that I had this summer was not in uh, Arizona. It was actually in northern Illinois. Mm. 
the, the sense that, well, this is, uh, forgive the cliche, the new normal, and that we should uh, seek to not make it necessarily our enemy, but try to make our peace with it. Hmm. So you have a book coming out about this experience where you hiked the Arizona Trail, right? And you were out, I assume, in that kind of desert heat in the process of that. What was that like? What did you learn on a personal level doing that? Well, it, it is the Arizona Trail. It's uh, 790 miles from uh, Utah to uh, to Mexico. Uh, some of it uh, over existing trails. Uh, some of it uh, blazed by a uh, Flagstaff uh, school teacher named Lee Shewalter. And what you learn out there is, at least I did, the profound relationship that your body has with water. Mm. Uh, the, the water is gasoline and it's also motor oil that it lubricates. And there were three or four times out there where um, I was never really in mortal danger. It wasn't like call search and rescue, but it was uh, how many miles to the next spring? And gosh, I've only got half a liter left. You know, those types of situations where you come up against the existential relationship between uh, water and your your own functioning being. And um, it, it, it is a, a sense of uh, desperation. I don't recommend it. Um, it's unpleasant to learn that lesson. Uh, but it's also, I think, a lesson that all Arizonans can can take to heart when they think about the uh, the bigger existence of our state and just how dependent we are on water. All right. Tom Zellner, thanks so much for coming back on. It's my pleasure. And finally, in Fronteras News. Mexico's Senate is considering a controversial plan to put the defense ministry in control of the civilian-led National Guard. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Blust reports the reform has drawn widespread criticism. The reform initiative moved to the full Senate for debate Thursday after two Senate commissions approved the measure. The plan presented by President Andrés Manuel López Obrador would give the Army operational, administrative, and financial control over the National Guard. The reform has been widely criticized by human rights groups and is expected to be challenged in the Supreme Court if it passes. The president has used high levels of violence and insecurity to justify the move, despite having promised to decrease militarization. The National Guard was formed in 2019 to replace the federal police, but has also been used for migration, border security, and infrastructure projects. Kendall Blust, KJZ News, and Mosio. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.